The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. All right. Well, it's great to have you guys with us this evening. And uh, we are in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Why don't you turn there with me to chapter 21, Isaiah chapter 21. Well, Isaiah... He's been passing out the doom and gloom. Uh, you know, some people, I heard um, a guy today um, just on the news. It's another one of these Christian artists, sad to say, who's left his faith and doesn't believe in God anymore. Uh, the lead singer for Hawk Nelson. And uh, this is happening a lot. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because he wrote kind of this whole um, sort of, I don't know, I sort of thought of it as sort of a manifesto <laughs> of why he's now an atheist. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking on one side, but at the same time, we saw it coming with, with that band and the, their walk. And I'm not trying to be judgmental, although the Bible says you'll know them by their fruits, and we're to judge the fruit, not to judge one another. So there's a funny thing in the very same chapter that says, judge not, lest you be judged. It says you'll know them by their fruit. And, and the truth is, I, I wonder sometimes if people like this never really were saved to begin with. They, they thought they were saved because they went to church. They thought they were saved because they heard a few Old Testament stories of the Bible, and, uh, but never were really uh, given real faith um, or never really had it. And I, I understand the predestination, divine election. I understand God's sovereignty, um, and that comes into play, of course, uh, in these things. But the guy went on and on about, you know, the Old Testament doom and gloom and the death and the blood and stuff in the Old Testament. And um, the thing is, that's a nominal reading of the Old Testament when you only see that stuff, because in the midst of the death and bloodshed, all threaded throughout the Bible, you see God's grace and mercy. And the Old Testament and the New Testament are really not that different. People try to say, well, the Old Testament's full of blood and guts. They haven't really been carefully reading their scriptures. Man, the mercy of God is from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, and it goes all throughout the Bible. Yeah, but Brett, Isaiah's a doom and gloom book. You, you said it, man, the doom of Edom the doom of Babylon, the fall of Babylon, the doom of Jerusalem. Um, you know, there's, there's all this wrath and judgment. And yes, that leaves a lot of people with questions about a fallen world and sinful condition and uh, our rebellious nature and, and God's wrath and his righteousness. I understand all the, those questions, but there are a lot of really good answers for all those questions. Every question that that guy was raising in his sort of manifesto of why he's no longer walking with the Lord, um, everyone has a very, really quite simple answer and uh, the problem is a lot of times people don't want to hear them or don't want to agree with God. That's, that's oftentimes the case. S rarely is it actually just total ignorance of the truth. Um, sometimes it has to do more with just a rebellious nature, a sin nature. And that's a bummer. That's a bummer because that's within all of us to rebel, to go against God. And that's why Isaiah is passing out the doom and the gloom. But even so far, We've seen beautiful little snapshots of how the Lord's mercy is going to sneak in. Even in these, you know, he's passing out the burden of the Lord and woe unto you, all these different places. And we see God's mercy uh, in the midst of all that. So um, be careful when you're reading the scripture to hear the tone of scripture, to hear the nuances and the little details. Uh, a nominal blowing through the Old Testament, you'll go, yeah, blood and guts, death and destruction. But that's not really, um, you know, being careful or, you know, accurate. It's, it's, it's something you have to do to dig. And that guy's faith was wavering. I'll have a suggestion. A lot of it, here's what happens. And this is 
coming from a guy who has been involved with Christian music and artists, you know, we had a band named Cutlass that came from Athey Creek here. And, um, you know, we would send pastors on the road with them when they were touring all over the world. And I got to go from time to time and see what was happening. And, you know, the, the cool thing about the Cutlass guys is they were constantly in the word, in the word, in the word. And we had pastors covering them and saying, man, how are you guys doing? And are you keeping in the word, you know? And, and that's where the faith is, is anchored. But the typical scenario, these young guys, you know, were in their youth group and they got in a band and they started playing and they were picked up by some record label. And so they left the church and their dad could have been a, pre- a pastor for crying out loud, but they weren't really rooted and grounded in the word. So they go on tour and people love them. And then this is what happens. I, I saw it, you know, I remember one band was opening for Cutlass and, um, you know, call me judgmental if you will, but here's what I saw as an old youth pastor, this kind of troubled me. We had this big concert in Florida Cutlass was there playing. They were openers back in those days. Um, uh, they later became the headliner. But, but um, there was one band, I won't name the band, but one band that played, uh, it was, they were awesome. I was like, oh, this is great. And as soon as they were done, they went out, went out the back door. All the youth group kids were there uh, celebrating and having fun and worshiping Jesus. And the band snuck out the back, went across the street to the bar and just sat on the bar and drowned their sorrows until the next show. Um, uh, I could tell there was a, there was a crisis of faith. Uh, what, because they were drinking alcohol? Well, um, call me judgmental, but there was something wrong with a band that was going to do ministry, but never really ministered to the kids, never said one word about Jesus, never really had anything but some cool guitar riffs and some fancy chords and playing. That's all it was. There was no faith. There was no Jesus. And you can see this all over the Christian music scene. It's really unfortunate. And so don't be shocked, Christians, when you see our, our um, you know, Christian musicians and artists going on their Instagram account and denouncing, renouncing their faith in God. It, it's, it's, it's a little bit, in my opinion, the industry is set up to do that. The, the music industry and, and a lot of a lot of young people. If you're growing up in a church that's not just verse by verse through the Bible, and they're getting these fluffy, you know, talks about God and not really getting into the details, they're going to walk away like that dude walked away. And we need to root our kids and ground them in the Word of God that they might have faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's what lacks uh, an understanding of Scripture. Um, it's so sad to hear that guy's diatribe about why he's no longer a, um, a, um, a Christian. And you can see it. He just, very basic questions that he had that are very easily answered, but somewhere along the way, nobody really gave him the, the answers. And it's, it was heartbreaking to read that. We need to be praying for that dude. Um, and, you know, if he, uh, you know, the, the Lord knows, the Lord knows his heart and what's going on there. So if he's a true seeker, he'll find the Lord. But uh, that's the thing. Isaiah is one of the guys that gets credited with a lot of the blood and guts, doom and gloom. And uh, we'll see even more of that tonight. So are you ready? Strap on your safety belt. Here we go. Isaiah chapter 21 is where we begin tonight as we left off. Of course, chapter 20 is just those six little verses, but man, kind of the most embarrassing verses of the whole book where Isaiah, Isaiah strips down totally naked and he runs around Israel naked for three whole years. Uh, and he's using that as an illustration of the nakedness of, that would come upon, you know, those of Ethiopia and Egypt and all that. And, um, you know, they, he said, the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, behold, such is our expectation. You know, it's, uh, it, it was an illustration of what God was going to do. They were stripped naked 
before all. That was kind of the idea. How would you like to be a prophet in Isaiah's time? And we'll see more of that, by the way, that kind of stuff in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and stuff like that. Well, in chapter 21, the first part of this chapter, it's a little bit of a mystery who and what we're talking about. But just to do a shortcut, I'll tell you what it is. It's Babylon again. We're talking about the fall of Babylon once more. Babylon is a major theme of Isaiah's prophecies, and he kind of ebbs and flows in and out of this discussion about what's going to happen to Babylon. And I'll show you how, uh, you know, hopefully prove to you that this is Babylon later in the chapter. But it starts off in chapter 21, verse 1. It says, The burden of the desert of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it cometh from the desert from a terrible land. A grievous vision is declared unto me. Uh, The treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Edom, or pardon me, Elam. Besiege, O Media, and all the uh, sighing thereof have I made to cease. Now, uh, what are we talking about here? Well, it's interesting because um, this is basically a phrase that you're going to come across from Isaiah quite a bit. See where he says, the treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously? This was Isaiah. Remember I told you his his speech and his his writing was flowery and expressive, and he used, you know, uh, a lot of different writing techniques, some that we miss because we're not reading the original Hebrew. But this dealer, dealer that's dealing treacherously, the treacherous dealer dealing treacherously, that's part of that language, and that's something you'll come across more after this. He's going to use that. But it's basically, you know, a, sort of an idiom or a phrase basically saying, um, you know, uh, this is bad stuff. It's going to be horrible. Um, the, the, uh, the one who's causing the trouble is going to be bad, really bad. That's the idea. So the treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously, and the spoiler spoileth. He's using that language saying, who's, who's he going to spoil? Well, the burden of the desert of the sea. What's the desert of the sea? And isn't that an oxymoron? Isn't that kind of a, how can you have a desert of the sea? Um, well, we'll see that as we get going. Um, it, it, he, he says, go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. Um, all the sighing thereof I, I made cease. Now, this is where you need to know a little secret about nations when you're reading them in the Bible. This will come into play when we're in Ezekiel, you know, chapter uh, 38, 39, talking about, you know, Gog and Magog and all that. Um, How do you figure out these ancient nations? You know, some of these nations are 3,000 years ago. Um, And how are we supposed to know who they really were after 3,000 years of history and name changes and, you know, conquering of one nation to another? Um, One of the secrets is to go to Genesis chapter 10 and, and make a study of Genesis chapter 10. We call that chapter the table of nations, and that's a good place to begin, Uh, and you can learn about which of these nations are which. Uh, But this interesting, this idea of Elam is um, an ancient name of Persia, which is a newer but still ancient name of Iran. Elam is ancient Iran, so it it went from Elam to Persia, Persia to Iran, if you, if you would. So just so you can know the region and the people that we're talking about. So when he says, go up Elam, Persia, go up Media, which is the Medes, the Medes and the Persians. He's talking about when the Medes and the Persians would come and wipe out Babylon. See, this is our first hint we're talking about Babylon because the Medes and the Persians are going to come up and destroy this place. 
uh, the spoiler's going to spoil, the treacherous dealer's going to deal treacherously through the Medes and the Persians. And if you recall in the story of Daniel, we read about that very night when Belshazzar was there, you know, partying down and saw a hand writing on the wall and he, you know, uh, messed up his pants uh, and said, let's get Daniel. And they, they got Daniel. And, and Daniel said, you know, that says, meeny, meeny, tackle you farson. Huh? What does that mean? It says, you've been found weighed in the balances, Belshazzar, and you've been found lacking. You're a lightweight when you should have been a heavyweight. And this very night, the Medes and the Persians are coming to take over your city. And what were they doing? While, you know, they thought they were in the impenetrable city of, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's glory there, Babylon, the walls, the, the Euphrates River is a giant moat around the city. Meanwhile, the Medes and the Persians were, they dammed up the river miles ahead. The river was low. Then they went through the moat with no water in it, and they went through the bars of the gates that the water normally was going through into the city. So they didn't have to bring their scuba gear. <laughs> they just walked right in and took over the city that night without even hardly a fight. Um, and that's what happened. This, this is Isaiah the prophet, you know, foretelling this long before this comes to pass. Now, by the way, Isaiah is prophesying this about Babylon, 100 years before Babylon was even a thing. The Medes and the Persians weren't even powerful yet. So to even say this stuff in Isaiah's time, it'd be a little bit like me saying, thus saith the Lord, Portland is going to be destroyed, the whole city and all of the metro Portland area. Oh yeah, who's gonna destroy Portland? Dundee, Oregon. They're gonna rally up an army and they're gonna come and wipe out Portland and all the greater city of Portland. You'd say, Brett, you're whacked. I mean, come on, are you kidding me? Dundee's just a bunch of vineyards and it's a beautiful country area where nice people live. Oh, but that's exactly what was happening back then. These people were not powerhouses and yet Isaiah's acting like these are gonna be the world powers. Nobody would have guessed this, but 100 years from this time, Isaiah's prophecy would come to pass exactly like he said, the Medes and the Persians. So um, all that to say, um, the Elam, Elamites were the pre-Persians, and uh, of course the Media people were the Medes later on. So he's, he's already going, what's going to happen to Babylon? It's going to go down. Verse 3, therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold upon me. As the pangs of a woman that travaileth, I was bowed down at the hearing of it, I was dismayed at the seeing of it. This is one of those things that is like a red flag for a Bible student. Again, your nominal Bible reader is like, yeah, whatever, talk about a woman in childbirth. I'm totally confused. But for those of us that love the Bible, this is like, wow, this is something that's huge. Because Jesus talked about this. Paul the Apostle talked about this. Whenever we talk about the end times, over and over and over again, the Bible talks about the way the end is going to come down is as a woman who has travailed with child pains, labor pains. I love that um, some of the greatest illustrations in the Bible are ones that all people for all nations and all kingdoms and time periods would understand. If Jesus tried to use the illustration of like, say, a a cell phone (laughs) or Wi-Fi or something like that, that wouldn't have worked in the first century. He could have done it because Jesus knew all things, but he didn't use that. He used the lilies of the field. Everybody knows about the lilies of the field. And and a lot of people know about the way this childbirth thing works, labor pains. Um, if you go to your you know, childbirth class, they teach you to be ready because, man, you know when the baby's coming because when those labor pains, when they get more frequent, you start timing them. 
the interval between each you know, labor pain, you time that. And the closer they get and the more intense they become, it means the baby's close, closer and closer. And it's a way to sort of tell how things are going when you're uh, delivering a baby. For millennia, women have understood that, and that's kind of the way it, it, it you know, comes out in the Bible. So whenever you see this kind of description, it's talking about the way the end is going to be that's going to deliver the baby. What's in the idiom of childbirth that Isaiah is talking about, and also Jesus, Matthew 24, talked about as a woman travails in, ch- in childbirth. Uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 talked about it's like a woman in travail. Um, all that is talking about the end. So what's the deal? Well, the baby, if you would, is, which is the wonderful part of the, the whole thing, is Christ's return. When is Jesus going to return? Well, no. Not the day nor the hour. Just like when a baby comes, you don't know the day nor the hour. But you do know the season, don't you? You know, you're pregnant, you're getting out to here, and you're starting to, you know, kind of feel like, man, we're ready to have, I've heard women say this, I'm ready to have this baby. Um, Do you ever feel like we're kind of like that as a a world right now? Man, we're ready to have this baby. Um, The labor pains have been coming more and more frequently. And Jesus told us what those pains would look like, earthquakes in diverse places, wars and rumors of wars pestilence and disease, um, you know, uh, famine, uh, all of these things. And don't forget, by the way, we're going to be talking about some of that stuff again on our next installment of A Prophecy Update, June 5th, Friday night, June 5th. We're going to do our next one once a month, first Friday of each month. I'm going to start doing these little prophecy updates. They're going to be mini prophecy updates, uh, and I'll be doing those more regularly because there's a lot of stuff to cover and talk about. But, um, but that's what, what we're looking at. When we look at prophecy, Bible prophecy, we're looking at the birth pains. And what are those pains that we're seeing that are more frequent and more intense? And I think this COVID virus one is just one of those birth pains, and it's an intense one. And the whole world's feeling this one. And we don't even know if this pain part is over yet. So it's, it's uh, intense, and, uh, and, and, you know, some of these are becoming frequent. Ebola, you know, or, or others, uh, you know, you could make the arguments about how our bodies and antibiotics aren't working as well. We could get into all that, but we won't. But all that to say, Isaiah reaches into that same illustration that gives us a, a sort of a flag that we're talking about Bible prophecy stuff and maybe even the end of the world. Now you say, well, this is the fall of, the, of Babylon with the Medes and the Persians. But if you recall, in these prophecies, there's a dual fulfillment. There's the near and the far. Are you still with me on that? I hope you remember that. And the near fulfillment, he's already given it to us. That is the Medes and the Persians, 100 years from when Isaiah prophesied this, would wipe out Babylon. And they did, like clockwork. But there's another fall of Babylon that's talked about in the book of Revelation at the very end, during the tribulation period. And we know that that fall is either a literal city or a figurative kind of notion of religious Babylon, economic Babylon. I I think it could be all three, um, you know, uh, but don't know that for sure. There's some people say Babylon will be rebuilt. Nebuchadnezzar um, lived in Babylon. And uh, remember Saddam Hussein, those of you who are old enough to remember him, he was one trying to rebuild Babylon and he called it Babylon and he called himself Nebuchadnezzar and he wanted to rebuild the city. But, you know, something, he got a little hung up on something. So he didn't quite finish that job. But, uh, but uh, it sits there right now kind of in ruin. even the stuff Saddam Hussein was working on. So is it going to be a literal rebuilding of a city? Is it going to be an economic, religious center? I don't know. I don't know. 
But you could make an argument that the notion of religious Babylon going all the way back to Nimrod's, you know, um, uh, building of the Tower of Baal, or Babel, I should say, um, and that whole thing, that, it, you know, could be that very thing, the world gathering, one world government, one world religion, uh, one world economic system, all that's going to happen according to the book of Revelation. That would be the far sort of prophecy that Isaiah would be talking about here. So let's keep going. He says in verse, um, verse 4, My heart panted, fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure hath he turned into fear unto me. Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower. Eat, drink, arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. So um, now this is where most scholars agree. And it's hard for us to see this, especially in several translations, you know. Um, but this is um, sarcasm. Basically, Isaiah uh, is saying, hey, it's all good. I know you're losing sleep at night over all this stuff, but don't. Eat your food. Drink your wine. Anoint the shield. Be ready. But, um, and then, you know, check out, make sure the watchman is watching. And let's see how that turns out for you. That's kind of what he's saying, because it's all going to go bad. It's sarcasm right here that uh, Isaiah is using. He uses that quite a bit in his book, by the way. Um, do, do, I was raised, my dad has a gift of being facetious, and sometimes it was hilarious, but when you're on the wrong end of it, sometimes I remember, sometimes I remember my, 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 I had to get my wife Debbie sort of up to speed. My dad sometimes can be a little sarcastic, and he's joking most of the time. <laughs> I remember uh, it was our prom uh, when Debbie and I were high schoolers, and we were, you know, high school uh, dating, you know, in high school, and we were going to her prom that day, and and I, I picked her up and I brought her to my house. And, you know, the old thing, you give her the corsage and all that back in the day. But one of her nails fell off. Um, and this is, this, is, this is funny. Now, you're going to think my dad is terrible on this one. So sorry, Dad. Got to tell this story. It's just hilarious, though. So Debbie comes walking up with her prom dress and her fancy nails. But one of her nails fell off. And she's like, oh, well, my dad was up on the roof that afternoon. Um, and he had a, 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 you know, air compressor, you know, nail gun for roofing. And he was up there putting up some new roofing. He's like, kachoo, kachoo, kachoo. And, um, and, and Debbie and I were like, hey, dad, you know, and I was there, and, you know, and she was still pretty new to my dad knowing who he was. And she said, oh, no, my nail fell off. And my dad said, hey, I can fix it. Kachoo, kachoo, kachoo. And she was like, oh. <laughs> now, I knew that was hilarious. I knew that he wasn't going to um, do that. But, but Debbie's like, is he for real? Like, uh, it took her a minute to figure it out. <laughs> but that's Isaiah the prophet. He's, he's very kind of sarcastic. And he's like, yeah, yeah, make yourself comfortable. It's all great. But you're going down and you're all going to die. Um, that's the kind of sarcasm that Isaiah is going to use. Sarcasm can be a tool that's used for, for uh, making a point. And Isaiah does that. But also be careful. Sometimes those of us that tend to be sarcastic can also be very annoying sometimes too, when we're not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Isaiah does it well here. So go ahead, chill out, he's saying. Get your watchman on the watchtower. It's great. Verse 7, And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels. And he hearkened diligently with much heed. And he cried, A lion, my lord. I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. 
And behold, here cometh a chariot of men and a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. Now, this is interesting. When, when Cyrus, you know, Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians, Cyrus and Darius, when they came and conquered Babylon, interestingly, um, they did not destroy the idols of Babylon. Um, so you say, you know, when it says here, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Now, by the way, if you're a student of the Bible, this also will echo into the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 18, uh, verse 2 is the same thing. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. He, he's echoing Isaiah's prophecy, and this is that dual fulfillment. And the reason I point out that Cyrus, do you know how we know that Cyrus didn't destroy Babylon's idols? We know because Cyrus, the way he rolled is he would go in and just collect more and more gods. He would conquer, you know, other people groups and then say, cool, we got more gods now. Now we can worship instead of 500 gods, we can worship, you know, 700 gods. Uh, The more the merrier as far as Cyrus is concerned. Now, Daniel, of course, was there during that time and he only believed in and worshiped one god. But Cyrus did not destroy the gods of Babylon. The reason that's important is this is yet to be fulfilled, this part that we're reading here where it says Babylon has fallen, has fallen, um, because that's going to happen in the future. Whatever gods Babylon has in the modern days, which could be greed, money, sex, the same notions are behind the gods. They just don't look the same as they did back then, but they're nonetheless still there. Um, those are going to fall uh, during this, this time in the book of Revelation, during the tribulation. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. The, the gods will be broken to the ground. Well, verse 10, O my threshing and the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of the Lord of, the, of hosts, the God of Israel have I declared unto you. Um, this is a word of, that associates with the, the situation uh, in the tribulation, the word threshing floor or the threshing of the corn on my floor. That's, that's an idiom of the tribulation period. And so that's that section, verses 1 through 10 is concerning Babylon. Now, we go to um, Duma, uh, verse 11. The burden of Duma, um, he calleth to me out of Seir, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And the watchman said, the morning cometh and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire ye, return, come. Here's two little verses given to one place. You know, other groups have taken a whole chapter. But why did this place of Duma or Edom, this is an, an ancient name for Edom, the Edomites. Uh, Duma, it means red. It has to do with Esau and the descendants of Esau, um, but the Edomites uh, there. And, and, and we know where this is because of Seir. Seir is none other than that region around Petra in uh, Moab or where Moab and Edom were. Okay, so it's that same general vicinity of the world. And so what's going to happen to them? Well, they're going to set a watchman, and the watchman, they'll say, what's going on, the watchman? And the watchman will say, "Um, morning's coming, but so is night, so come, but go. And he gives this unclear, weird message. And the uh, operative word here is the watchman's going to be there, but there's going to be confusion. And the watchman's not going to know what to tell anybody. Morning's coming, but so is night. Return, come, inquire, if you will inquire, inquire. Like, it's it's just not not a clear... Uh, nothing happened. It's just a lack of clarity. Makes me wonder if maybe Duma is the United States, uh, because we're very Duma-esque right now, Um, not knowing what to do with with, uh, the coronavirus, 
Um, you know, half the doctors I'm reading and seeing on the news are saying, man, we need to get outside, get some fresh air, go to the beach. Uh, they're saying, no, you got to get inside. You got to go to, you know, cover, uh, lock yourself in your house. Don't go. And now there's this huge feud between so-called science. One science is saying you got to be outside. The other science is saying you got to, uh, you know, take cover and lock down. And uh, there's total disagreement. And uh, it's an interesting season we're in, you know, and, and we, we can talk about all the confusion. There's so much confusion. Um, you know, everybody's calling it fake news. I think, you know, Trump really brought that to the front. But uh, have you seen it? Uh, Twitter called Trump fake news yesterday. Um, and so Trump wants to shut down Twitter. And like, there's just, it's, it's all information. It, the information is in a real crisis right now because nobody knows what's true or false. And everybody's so political, they're just pushing their agenda. And, and a lot of us in this culture, in this world are saying, who do you believe? Who can we really believe what they're saying? And that's a, that's a crisis because what if some of the stuff they're saying is really true, but we're skeptical, skeptical because they've been calling things science that really aren't science. So now it's the boy who cr- cried wolf. You know what I mean? It's like if they've been lying about science for years now, which they have. See, that's the thing. It's funny how the secular world makes this claim. Christians don't believe in science, uh, which couldn't be further from the truth. Christians uh, that I know love science. We just like real science. You know, uh, science has been truly tested. And we don't call things that are called theory, we don't call them fact, like evolution. Evolution is still a theory. Anybody who's half brain has to admit it's still just a theory. Um, We don't have, you know, total proof that evolution is real, at least macroevolution versus microevolution. But all that to say, they've done that for years. Oh yeah, this is fact. And, And it's just... So it's lies. And the Bible says that's one of the marks of the last days. They'll call things science, falsely so-called. And so this place of Duma, that's kind of where they're at. The, the watchman's going to be on the wall, but he's not going to be making a clear you know, sound of the trumpet. And we talked about that on Sunday. If you miss Sunday's message, um, by the way, if, uh, I've noticed there's still a buzz on social media and stuff. And a lot of people missed my teaching on Sunday about, you know, um, what we're doing and why we're waiting, why we're not opening up the building uh, and many of the pastors in Oregon. Why are we not doing that? And there's people saying, if you guys were men of faith, you'd just do it, you know, and, and uh, you know, go against the law of, of, you know. I gave a very careful answer on Sunday. If you missed Sunday's message, you need to listen to that. Um, and uh, you'll see that uh, it's not that we're afraid and it's not that we're trying to be uh, weirdos about the coronavirus. And we do believe we have freedoms in this world and the Constitution allows us to assemble and freedom of religion. We, we get that. And nobody's rolling over. Uh, everybody needs to calm down. And I, I, I implore you, please uh, tune into that teaching from Sunday if you missed it. Because uh, we need to be on the same page. The church should be uh, moving in unity. Um, and by the way, if you missed it on Sunday, the, the watchman on the wall that the Lord prescribed in the Old Testament were the prophets. And sadly, uh, the, the, the people didn't listen to the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they just blew them off and they thought they knew more than the prophets. Interestingly, and I know this sounds self-serving, but whatever, the New Testament calls the pastors to be the watchman on the wall. So while there's a bunch of bloggers and little people with their typewriters at home and, and typing in their little blogs and their, their social media saying, pastors need to do this and churches need to do that. 
Meanwhile, God actually puts the pastors on the wall as watchmen and says, they're the ones who blow the trumpet when it's time to go to battle. Um, we looked at that on Sunday. And uh, so don't be tooting your little kazoo, uh, telling everybody when to go to battle, when, when the Lord doesn't necessarily put you in that role. Well, Brett, that's condescending and you think you're great. Well, you don't know my heart. My heart is to be biblical, to be scriptural, and a lot of people are not doing that right now. So that's my challenge. That's my charge to those of you that are stirring up trouble. Uh, don't. Lord, may they be as one, Jesus prayed. Unity, not uniformity, unity. That's the key. Well, this watchman drops the ball, and he's not really given a clear message to the people of Edom. And then we moved to the uh, next group of people called Arabia. Uh, Verse 13, the burden upon Arabia. In the forest in Arabia shall ye lodge, O ye traveling companies of Dedanim, or Dedan is one way to say that. Dedan or Dedanim is, Dedan is like the Dedan, uh, it's like uh, the plural form of Dedan. Like, you know, we always call Sherwood Sherwoodians. I don't know if that's the real term, but just fun to say, Sherwoodian. But the Dedan, the people of Dedan, were the Dedanim. Um, and verse 14, the inhabitants of the land of Tima. These are all people in that region of uh, Saudi Arabia. The inhabitants, verse 14, of the land of Tima brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Within a year, according to the years of an hireling, and all the glory of Kedar shall fail. And the residue of the number of the archers, the mighty men of the children of Kedar, shall be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel hath spoken it. Okay, so we're talking about Saudi Arabia, and there's, there's the near prophecy, and there could be a far prophecy about the Saudis. The Saudis right now are in trouble uh, largely because of the, the Iranians, and there's um, a little bit of an arms race over there, and there's problems. We'll talk more about the Saudis probably in our prophecy update, but this idea of Kedar, that's, that's that northern region of Saudi Arabia. We know mostly today, um, you know, um, of Kuwait, uh, some of you, some of our, you know, soldiers and military were in Kuwait and stationed there. That, that's Kedar. That's ancient Kedar. And um, the children of Kedar. Uh, now, the thing about the Kedar region, uh, this is something that the Muslim uh, knows, uh, at least the studious Muslim, that Kedar and the Kedar, the people of Kedar, uh, it's a very important region. Do you remember that the thing that sort of kicked Desert Storm into gear back when that all happened? Um, it was the, uh, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, moving his forces into Kuwait. You know, they're in the Iraq going south into Kuwait. And uh, that's why we encamped in Saudi Arabia and we went into Kuwait to uh, save them from the Iraqis. Uh, our intentions and all that stuff is all in question but and what we were doing there. But the thing is, that is a, a key region. The, the people of Kedar, um, or Kuwait, um, Kedar was the second son of Ishmael. Okay, now you got to remember, the Jews were of Isaac, the Arabs were of Ishmael. Abraham was the father of them both. But uh, the Lord says, I'm going to bless and bring the king of kings through Ishmael, or pardon me, through Isaac. Ishmael will be a wild man in the wilderness, um, but... 
I will bless Ishmael, the Lord says. If you remember the story, remember Hagar slept with Abraham to try to help the Lord along to make sure they get the promised child. So she gave birth to Ishmael. He's the father of the Arab nations. Isaac was, of course, the father of the Jews. Um, and it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's the line that God continued to bless. The, the Muslims say, no, uh, the Christians got it wrong. The Jews got it wrong. It, it's not Isaac. It was Ishmael that would be blessed. And this, one of the sons of Ishmael was Kedar. And so Muhammad, of all people, was from that tribe of Kedar. Or he was a Kedarite. Um, and, um, and there's some that say that the, uh, the Mahdi will be coming from that tribe as well. And so the, even to this day, the Mahdi is the, sort of the Messiah of the Muslim eschatology. But this idea of Kedar um, is, um, is, is going to be wiped out. That's what it's saying here. And it makes you wonder if this far prophecy has to do with kind of the future of Islam after the tribulation period. They will be driven out. The uh, glory of Kedar shall fail. The residue of the number of archers and the mighty men of the children of Kedar shall be diminished. Uh, so some people see that as a fall of Islam at the end of the tribulation, which it will fall. We do know that. Uh, when Jesus comes and rules and reigns uh, there uh, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Um, it'll probably be one of the armies fighting against the Messiah in the Valley of Armageddon will be the Muslims and the armies of Islam, you know, including, um, you know, the Iranians and uh, the Iraqis and other Muslims around the world. Uh, so that's just a prophecy that very well could just come to pass like it says here, or it will. Verse 20, uh, chapter 22. Now we move to the burden of the valley of vision. Can you imagine what the valley of vision is? Well, it's probably speaking of none other than Jerusalem. Um, is there a valley in Jerusalem? There is. It's, we, we in Oregon probably wouldn't call We'd call it a, a ravine, <laughs> but they call it a valley. Um, and it's, a, it's the valley of Kidron uh, there that runs right adjacent to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And it's, you know, for a city, it's a pretty deep ravine, uh, but it's a key ravine. I take groups down the Valley of Kidron. You go on the Mount of Olives, down the valley, into the Kidron Valley, and then back up to the mount uh, of the, uh, where the temple sat. The burden of the Valley of Vision. What aileth thee now, thou that art wholly gone up to the housetops? Thou art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Thy slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in the battle. All thy rulers are fled together. They are bound by archers. All that are found in thee are bound together, which have fled from far. Therefore, said I, look away from me. I will weep bitterly, labor not to comfort me, because of the spoiling of the daughter of my people." Man, uh, this is where if you start reading in 1 Kings chapter 18, pardon me, 2 Kings chapter 18, 19, and 20, you're basically hearing the story of what Isaiah is prophesying about here. And again, it's the, the story of, you know, the Syrians and Rabshakeh and Sanharib uh, on all, all that, that story of the 185,000 soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. And what was going on, man? There was a horrible besieging of the city of Jerusalem. And there's horrible things that were happening. They were starving. They were trying to figure it out. Hezekiah was freaked out. He spreads the letter before the Lord. If you remember that whole story, if you don't, go back to 2 Kings chapter 18, 19, and 20. And you could read that. 
maybe those three chapters before you go to bed tonight, and it'll get you up to speed. And you'll start to see those prophecies that Isaiah gives, they come to total fulfillment uh, in first, uh, pardon me, Second Kings chapter 18, 19, and 20. Well, verse 5, for it is a day of trouble and the treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and the crying to the mountains. And Elam, who's the Elamites? Correct, Persia, good. <laughs> and uh, it says in Elam, uh, the Iranians, Persia, ancient, bear the quiver with the chariots of men and horsemen and Kerr. Um, that's the, in, Kerr is in the Assyrian province. Um, and the men of Kerr uncovered the shield. That means they went to battle. And it shall come to pass that thy choicest valley shall be full of chariots. And the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. And he discovered the covering of Judah. And thou didst look in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. Ye have seen also the breaches of the city of David, that they are many. And ye gathered together the waters of the lower pool. And you have numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of you broken down to fortify the wall. You made also a ditch between the two walls for the water of the old pool, for the water of the old pool, but have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect unto him that fashioned it long ago. And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to the girding with sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And it was revealed in mine ears by the Lord of hosts, surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die, saith the Lord God of hosts. Blood and guts, man, right here, Isaiah, just like some people see. But this is a horrible story. But um, there's some things here that you maybe remember that that we read about. In verse 9, it says, you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. Verse 11, you made a ditch or a tunnel, is better translation, for the water of the old pool, but you have not looked unto the maker thereof, neither had respect in him that fashioned it long ago. See, this is an interesting thing we learn that's new. When we read about the story when Rabshakeh and the Syrians besieged the city, there were chariots all around, like this says, They were surrounded by 185,000 soldiers. But the cool thing is, uh, um, Hezekiah the king heard this prophecy, so they readied themselves. And they dug this tunnel, two digging teams there in the lower part of Jerusalem, the ancient city of David. And they started chiseling through to make the, um, the pool, the spring of Gihon, go through the rock of the city all the way, you know, 1,700 meters uh, all the way down across this way into the Pool of Siloam. And it made it so that when the city was besieged, they had a constant flow of fresh water, even though there was an army surrounding them. They didn't have to go outside of the city walls. It was a brilliant feat of engineering. Um, and I take our groups through the Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's, it's a great place because you can see the chisel marks of these guys 3,000 years ago who made this tunnel. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy fun place to go, and uh, we, we love seeing it. You wade through the water of the spring of Gihon to this pool of Siloam. It's great. But one thing that's kind of funny is they dug this way and this way, but they, about halfway there, they missed each other, 
And the only way they knew they missed each other, they could hear each other chiseling the one team and the other team. So they, they went like this. And so they dug sort of a zigzag to meet and the water flowed through there. And so, I mean, it was an amazing feat to do it 3,000 years ago. These guys did this cool thing. But it is funny, they kind of made a mistake, and you can see it there for all the... But that wasn't their only mistake in the digging of Hezekiah's tunnel. It was brilliant engineering-wise. It was brilliant tactically to have water when they were being besieged. But here Isaiah says, but you will forget the one who made the water, the pool of Gihon, the spring of Gihon. You, you dug the tunnel, but you forgot the maker of all things. And that's the important thing. I, I do believe it's cool that they dug the tunnel. I think Hezekiah was being, was being obedient when he did that. But the problem came when they all put their trust in their little tunnel, and they were supposed to be trusting in the Lord. They didn't look to the maker of the water and of the springs. And that's what happens there. And I wonder if you and I do the same thing. I wonder if there's times where you and I kind of, we do our work and we're putting together our financial portfolio and we're trying to save for retirement and we're, we're digging our tunnel and trying to make preparation for life, just like they were. But they forgot the maker of all things, that God is the one who is in control of all these things. So tonight, maybe that's something for us to think about. Am I toiling and doing my thing, but forgetting the one who made all of these things? Watch out for that human tendency. But all this would happen to them. And there's, again, verse 13, he's being sarcastic again. Go ahead and eat your flesh of your oxen, which they wouldn't have. Drink your wine, which they fell short on. Um, They were in real trouble. But the Lord says, it's going to be bad for you guys. Well, verse 15, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, go get thee um, unto this treasure, even to Shebna, which is over in the house, and say, what hast thou here? And whom hast thou here? That thou hast hewed thee out a sepulcher here, and he that heweth him out a sepulcher on high, and that graveth a habitation for himself in a rock. Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. And he will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country, and there shalt thou die. And there the chariots of the glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. And I will drive thee from thy station and from thy state, um, and he shall pull thee down. What's going on here? Well, interesting, there is a dude in this story, uh, whose name is Shebna, uh, first, pardon me, second Kings, I can't say first Kings, second Kings chapter 18, we read about this guy named Shebna and Eliakim and Hilkiah. And these guys were the ones that were going over, talking to the enemy, sort of like, you know, when you see in um, the movies where the two armies are facing off and the, the, the guys ride their horses out into the center and they have sort of the talk before they start slicing each other up and hacking each other up in battle. Uh, that little conference. Well, that's what, you know, Hilkiah and uh, Eliakim and Shebna, those were the guys that would run out and talk to Rav Shaka and, uh, you know, the, the, the Syrian army. So all that to say, who is this guy? Well, interesting. We don't know much about him in Second Kings 18 other than he's mentioned as one of those guys. But here we're told this guy had ill intent. He was trying to make a name for himself and he built a tomb for himself that was glorious. So that he'd go down, and that's the sepulcher that was built on high. And, uh, you know, behold, well, you, you know, he says, you're going to make a, a sepulcher on high that give, a graveth uh, a habitation for yourself in a rock. Um, and the Lord's saying, I see that, and that's really stupid. 
Um, and you're going to be taken away, actually, and you'll never be able to be laid in that sepulcher that you made. Um, I wonder, you know, if people are preparing for death in the wrong way, like Shiva. Oh, man, I need to make sure I have funeral arrangements, and I make sure that I have a really nice coffin. Did you know you can spend, you know, easily $10,000 on a coffin today? Um, you know, coffins are expensive. Um, uh, did you know you can actually still build a pine box if you want to uh, for a coffin, and that's fine? That's still legal? I didn't know that until recently. Uh, one of our AC Creekers said, yeah, Pine Box is great for me. And uh, I was like, wow, that, that's, that's really something, you know, just like the cowboy days. But uh, there's, there's actually now coffins that are solar-powered that pipe music into your coffin for centuries to come. Hello, nobody's hearing that music. You're dead. Uh, you're not there anymore. That body is just a shell. But see, the, the, that's the point. Shebna was this guy who was building himself sort of this legacy of a huge, beautiful sepulcher. And God says, you're not even going to use that. You're, you're actually a loser, because he was thinking wrongly about that. And he wasn't thinking more eternally. So what happened? Well, remember the other two guys I mentioned uh, from the story of Second Kings 18? Well, check this out, verse 20. It shall come to pass in that day that I will call uh, my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I, I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So Shebna is going down, and Eliakim is going to be raised up into his place. Now here he's called the treasurer in verse 15. In Second Kings, he's also called a scribe. Um, so he had these, these high levels of responsibility, and he was going to lose those uh, to a guy named Eliakim. And that's the story from Second Kings. Again, you can read that um, in your own time. Well, now, the next question is, verses 22 through 25, who are we talking about? And be careful, because you might not be thinking the right way. This is something that's tricky. Uh, and there's debate. This is a very controversial passage we're about to look at. Because I think you'll think you'll know who we're talking about, but then we'll have to question, do we really know who we're talking about? So it says, verse 22, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. Do you remember where we read that? The, this is, again, Isaiah and the book of Revelation have much in common. There's all these phrases that the apostle John was given in his vision of uh, Jesus Christ. Um, and they use the same words, Isaiah and, and John, from, you know, thousands of years apart or, you know, over a thousand years apart. Um, but this idea of the open and shut doors, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, uh, and Jesus even mentioned this. Um, so, um, verse 23, he says, And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issues, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons. You're saying, I know who this is. It's Jesus, because we're talking about the son of David, the house of David, uh, something laid on his shoulders. We know the government will be upon his shoulders. He would bear the burden of the cross on his shoulders. Um, and, you know, the Lord is the one who can shut doors no man can open, and open doors no man can shut. And fastening to a nail, there's a picture of the cross. Jesus hung on the cross in a sure place. The cross is as sure as it gets. And it shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. Jesus is going to rule and reign on his father's house on the temple mount. 
this is Jesus, it has to be. Um, but here's where it gets tricky. Verse 25, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden of that uh, was upon it shall be cut off for the Lord hath spoken it. Wait a minute, the nail was sure, but now it's taken out, it's removed. So here's the two theories on this uh, that I've come across. There's others, I guess, like, but the ones that are most legitimate that I see, some scholars say this is Jesus, and when he comes and rules and reigns, the cross will be, the nail of the cross, if you would, would be removed because he'll be with us. And, um, and no longer are we going to be uh, fastened. You know, we were crucified with Christ, but now we're ruling and reigning with Christ. So there's this argument that this, this, this uh, description is Jesus, and then the millennial kingdom, the nail will be removed. That's kind of their idea. Others, and this is just for speed tonight, you guys can dig into it if you want to a little more, but some say, no, 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 this is Antichrist. This whole description, he's a poser, he's an imitator, and he's going to look like a Messiah. The Jews are going to think he's a Messiah, but, and he'll seem sure, but he'll be a nail that seems fastened, but it'll be pulled out of place when Christ returns. So those are the two theories. Is it Jesus or is it the Antichrist? And people debate that. Uh, and you can do your own homework on that, but it is interesting nonetheless. Uh, to see how Isaiah gives this word. It's kind of mysterious. Well, quickly, let's tackle chapter 23. Um, this is the miserable overthrow of the, the city called Tyre. Um, do you think the Lord's going to spare Tyre? Um, do, you, do you think you, that uh, it's going to work out? <laughs> Sorry, it's late. Let's, let's keep going here. Verse, verse 1, the burden of Tyre. Howl, ye ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no entering in from the land of Chittim. Uh, it re- is revealed to them. Be still, ye inhabitants of the isle, uh, thou whom thou merchants of Zidon, uh, that pass over the sea and have replenished. And by great waters, the seed of Sihor, um, ha- the harvest of the river in her revenue. And she is a mart of nations." Um, a mart being like the 7-Eleven. Yeah, she's a market of the nations where people came to Tyre. Now, Tyre and Zidon were extremely prosperous and uh, big cities that were fortified and very uh, economically, it was a banking center. Um, what is Tyre? Well, Tyre in this, at this time was an island just off the, the coast of, on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, what is in today called Lebanon north of Israel. And the men of Tyre and Sidon are famous. You know, there's, you kind of see them as a powerful group of people. But here the Lord's foretelling the fall of Tyre, the island, uh, the island of Tyre. Um, so he, um, he says, um, verse four, be thou ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea hath spoken, even the strength of the sea, saying, I travail not, nor bring forth children, neither do I nourish up young men, nor bring up virgins. As the report concerning Egypt, so shall they be sorely pained at the report of Tyre. Pass ye over to Tarshish, how ye inhabitants of the isle. Is this your joyous city whose antiquity is of ancient days? Her own feet shall carry her afar off to sojourn. So the idea is people are going to be really bummed when Tyre gets messed up. 
because people like the city. It's a, it's a beautiful city. It was a prosperous city. I, I suppose you might say like Las Vegas. If we heard Las Vegas was suddenly wiped out, some of you, not all of you, would be really sad. Oh man, we're not going to be able to go down to Las Vegas. Um, most of us are like, oh well, we lost Las Vegas. Uh, too bad. No, I'm just kidding. But but that's the thing. Tyre was sort of an epicenter of economic prosperity, and it's where people went to buy their stuff, and, and all the stuff was available um, right there at Tyre. But everybody's bummed. It was normally the joyous city, verse 7 says. Verse 8, who hath taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city whose merchants are princes, whose traffickers are the honorable of the earth? The Lord of hosts hath pur- purposed it to stain the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Pass through thy land as a river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretcheth out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord hath given a commandment against the merchant city to destroy the strongholds thereof. By the way, this is another one of those cities they thought was impenetrable. So for Isaiah to say, yeah, the city's going down, people are like, yeah, right. Uh, who could wipe out Tyre? It's impenetrable. It's an island that's fortified. Um, and, uh, you know, first of all, you have to have a navy just to get out there. And then once you got there, you have to figure out how to get into the city uh, and wipe them out. So it was seemingly impenetrable. So they said, who could do this? And, and Isaiah says, the Lord, he's purposed it. He's going to do it. Um, and um, verse 10 Pass through thy land, O river, O daughter of Tarshish, there is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea and shook kingdoms. The Lord hath given a commandment against the merchant city to destroy the strongholds thereof. And he said, Thou shalt no more rejoice, O thou oppressed virgin, daughter of Zidon. Arise, pass over to Chittim, there also shalt thou have no rest. Behold the land of Chaldeans, this people was not till the Assyrians founded it for them that dwell in the wilderness. They set up the towers thereof, they raised up the palaces thereof, and he brought it to ruin. Howl ye, ye ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. It shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten seventy years, according to the days of one king. After the end of seventy years shall Tyre sing as a harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, thou harlot, that hast been forgotten. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that thou mayest be remembered. And it shall come to pass after the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre and she shall turn to her hire and shall commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world upon the face of the earth and her merchandise and her hire shall be holiness to the Lord. It shall not be a treasure nor laid up for her merchandise shall be for them that dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently uh, for the durable clothing. Um, now, um, this is interesting because um, Tyre uh, would be destroyed, but this, this chapter is sort of the mysterious description of that. It gets a little more specific when Ezekiel the prophet gives the same prophecy. In fact, I know it's uh, almost time to be done tonight, but turn with me to Ezekiel 26. I'm going to show you where Ezekiel the prophet would give us sort of a similar dissertation about Tyre. Ezekiel 26. Now, the reason this is uh, um, a great thing, and why I'm sort of camping out on this Tyre thing just for a minute more, is um, the, the prophecy here was exacting. It's a prophecy that I never tire of. 
um, because, uh, because of what happened here. Um, so it says here in Ezekiel 26, verse 3, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, or Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against thee, as the sea causes his waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre, and break down her towers. And I will scrape the dust from her, and make her like the top of a rock, so she will be like a flat tire. Sorry, I shouldn't even say this. There's nobody in the room. Nobody's laughing, except maybe some of you are, are rolling your eyes right now. Um, it shall be, verse 5, um, a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. It shall become a spoil to the nation. So, so um, it's going to be scraped. The city is going to be scraped, and there's going to just be fishers and nets there. Um, remember when Isaiah said for a space of 70 years, it'll be like uninhabited and nobody will even be there except for maybe a few net fishermen on the seashore instead of this massive city that's like brimming with people and population and wealth. It's just going to be an empty place that's scraped clean. How's that going to happen? Well, it goes on verse seven. For thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will bring upon Tyrus Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, which... Uh, what happened in 585 BC, by the way, when Nebuchadnezzar came to Tyre, and a king of kings from the north with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen and companies and much people. Um, and so Nebuchadnezzar would be one of these guys who would be the first one to go there in 585 BC. Um, but it goes on, and look at, we'll jump forward here, verse 14, and I will make thee like the top of a rock, thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more, for I, the Lord, hath spoken it, saith the Lord God. Okay, so here's what happened. Uh, this, is, this is why this prophecy is so cool, because it's so exacting. Nebuchadnezzar in 585 BC, um, he destroyed Tyre, but he didn't flatten Tyre. Remember how I told you it was a flat Tyre? And, um, and uh, Nebi didn't do that. He, he destroyed the people, took a bunch of them prisoner and captive, uh, but he left a remnant of the people there, and the men of Tyre were still there. Um, but one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar found was that the city of Tyre was both kind of on the, the, the seashore of the Mediterranean Sea, but they also had a fortress out on the island that was about a half mile out from the, from the water's edge. About a half mile out was the, the fortress of Tyre. So Nebuchadnezzar, he wiped it out, got all the people out, left the fortress standing, uh, left the city standing. But after Nebuchadnezzar, after the Medes and the Persians, along came Alexander the Great. And if you remember, 225 years later, Alexander came down and besieged the city. And guess how long Alexander the Great besieged the city of Tyre? Now, remember, Alexander the Great um, was just a young guy, and he, he wasn't around for very long. He you know, died at 33. Did you know Alexander the Great was one of the first things he did was take the city of Tyre, and he besieged it for 13 years. Um, uh, and, and, it's, and, and here's why. What happened was Nebuchadnezzar pretty much drove the people out 225 years earlier, and they went out to that fortress out in the ocean, a half mile off the shore. So when Alexander the Great came and besieged the city, by, fine, by the time he went into the city and took it, the people were all gone. They had snuck out the back door and went through the, the ocean at night on boats over a long period of time, and they got their people out to that fortress, and, that, and there was no people there. This ticked off Alexander to no end. He was so furious, history tells us, that he commanded his army to build a causeway from the land out to the fortress, 
Um, it was a very shallow part of the ocean. So they took the ruin and the rubble of the city that was on the land and they started scraping it clean and pushing all that debris into the ocean and made a causeway. You can Google Earth this. Just Google Earth right now, Tyre, and you'll see the, the causeway that Alexander the Great and his men built. It's still there. Um, there's houses built on it now. But they moved all that rubble and, de- and debris and made a land bridge out to this fortress. And uh, history tells us Alexander was so furious by these men of Tyre, he literally carried debris and rocks on his own back and helped contribute to making this land bridge. Um, uh, but basically, um, you know, they, they scraped Tyre clean. Uh, when he got out to that um, fortress, he took a bunch of them captive, a bunch of them enslaved, killed about 8,000 of them, and took to slaves about 30,000 people from that city of Tyre, but left a little remnant there. Some of the, he gave some people a pass that were hiding in a temple for sort of like free base. That's a long story. But after Alexander the Great, then came the Crusaders in 1290 AD. The Crusaders came down to this kind of a new rebuilt city of Tyre, and the Muslims drove them out, and the Muslims knocked over the city, pushed the rest of it into the sea, and now the whole thing is flat. There's no great city. There's no great anything. By, uh, you know, 1290 AD, um, it just kind of sat empty for the longest of time. Now there's little neighborhoods built on it. Um, but for the longest time, it was just a place where um, fishers' nets were put out there and fishermen were. It was once, it'd be like, sort of say, like, you know, in our equivalent is New York City and, and their, um, you know, the Statue of Liberty and all the people coming to our country there. That's what people did. They came to that region of the world through Tyre and they would go to that great city. But can you imagine if suddenly it was just barren, flat, scraped clean? Uh, I sort of remember Planet of the Apes when Charlton Heston saw the Statue of Liberty buried in the sand. That's pretty much what happened with Tyre. And it sat that way for millennia. Um, They're just now building little towns and villages on there, and you can see them on Google Earth. But it's not like a big city. It's just neighborhoods and stuff. All that to say, Isaiah spoke that prophecy with exact precision. Ezekiel even dialed it in more. Tyre was toast. And let me remind you of one scripture that we read in, what was it, Isaiah 14, I believe. Um, Go back with me to Isaiah uh, 14. Yes, Isaiah 14, 24. We read this. It says, The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. When the Lord thinks of doing something, he does it. And it's as good as done. And there's no messing around. When the Lord says, this is what's going to happen, it's going to happen. So all the prophecies of the Bible, all the promises of the Bible are in him. Yay and amen. They're going to happen. It's a done deal. And so that's why we love studying Bible prophecy, because we know those things are going to come to pass. But also the promises of God's word. Man, we can just trust that they're true. He says it's going to happen. There's good and bad promises, by the way. Like, for example, you know, be sure of this, Numbers 32, 23. Be sure of this, your sins will find you out. That's a promise of God. If you're secretly sinning behind the you know, closed doors, that sin, you're going to be found out. That, that's a promise of God's word. Name it and claim it. <laughs> but, you know, there's a lot of good promises too. Like, for example, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, for every bad thing, the Lord gives us a good thing and a good promise to cling to. 
That's what you got to cling to. When you read about the destruction of Tyre and the destruction of these nations, you got to realize this was of the Lord's mercy that he was wiping these nations out because they were wiping each other out and wiping out other nations. And, and, and it's all because of the sinful condition of man. And ultimately Christ, he promises he's going to come and he's going to straighten out all this craziness. The stuff that's still going on in the world today, he's going to come, he's going to rule and reign in Jerusalem. And that's something the Lord thought to do. So it's going to happen. It's a promise of God and we can bank on it. You can be sure of it. I love that about the Bible. In a day where there's fake news and, and arguing about what's true or false and science falsely so-called, I find the Bible extremely refreshing because it's just, it's as good as done. The Bible, when it says it, it's going to happen. It's proven that thus far, everything the Bible said would happen historically did. Now we've only yet to see the end, the way it all comes out. And the Bible gives us detail on that. Let's just trust the Lord, put our hope in him, be ready for when the Lord takes us to be with him. That's going to be a glorious day. Well, there it is. We'll uh, pick up chapter 24 next week. Let's pray. And Father, we're thankful for your word. It is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that, Lord, your word would do its work, that we would put our trust in it, for it is your word, not the word of men. But it's so true, and it's come to pass so perfectly. Um, Lord, I pray that as we've taken this time in your word, that faith would come by hearing and hearing by your word. Lord, I pray that we would not think of the doom and gloom, but of the rejoicing that we get to have when, when you take your church to be up with you, when you rule and reign and make all the wrongs right. We look forward to that. Help us to be patient, but we do pray, Lord, come quickly. May you come and take us up to be with you in your timing, according to your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.